listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As we approach the text of Scripture, um, just by way of introduction, there are different types of literature in the Bible. For example, there is prophetic literature in the Bible. So you may be studying the book of Daniel or Revelation, and you have to take that into account. What is he speaking to from these texts? Are they futuristic? Um, there is wisdom literature in the Bible. When you come to the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, there's worship literature in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms. So we approach the scriptures in the way that they are written with a specific purpose of, of teaching us what they have for us. Um, we come to the epistles, the writings of Paul or John or, or Peter or Jude. And as we read those, they're written to specific churches in specific places. And they're usually initially rich in doctrine and then practical application of that doctrine. In other words, here's the doctrinal belief. Now, how do I live that out? And so it's a different kind of teaching. When we come to the Gospels, we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're looking at this narrative about Jesus Christ. And we have to uh, consider because some people would come and they say, well, you know, I want, I want this thing to be broken down and I want some principles and I want it to feel like we're going through the book of Ephesians. And if we're not going through Ephesians, Luke is not going to feel like Ephesians. The point of the gospel of Luke is, is that Luke is, is writing to Theophilus and he wants to convince Theophilus that Jesus is who we say that he is. And so we're just looking at Jesus over and over and over again through all these different lenses so that we can come to this one conclusion that he is God, that he is who he says he is, that he does what he says he will do. And if we trust in him, we can have eternal life. So we should walk away every week, not necessarily learning something new about Jesus, but falling more and more in love with Jesus Christ and being more and more in awe of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the text this week, that's what we're trying to do. I'm probably not going to share anything new with you. I don't have any new secrets or insights, but we're going to just look at Jesus and hopefully walk away in awe of him. And so we're in Luke chapter 13 this morning, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 13 and verse number 10. Jesus has uh, been kind of duking it out with the Pharisees, and then he came to this time where he was uh, trying to uh, impress upon them that time is short. If you're going to enter the kingdom, enter the kingdom now. The kingdom is standing right in front of you. You know the weather, but you can't tell the kingdom when you see it. And he's traveled now. We don't know exactly where he is, but he's in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And so we just kind of get to drop in for a few minutes and listen to what's happening there. And I want to read through that and then talk through that for a few minutes this morning. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse number 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Luke, the historian, Luke, the physician, understands the physical malady. He understands the details that we need from a historical standpoint to put us in a geographical location on a specific day. Probably somebody that the readers could even identify because of these specific details that are going on in her life. She is bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, 
when Jesus saw her, don't miss that. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Uh, that's the beauty of the kingdom. When I read that, I thought this is absolutely beautiful. You say, what should we walk away with? That's absolutely beautiful. That's just absolutely beautiful, right? Let that sink in. But that's followed immediately with the ruler of the synagogue. Notice what happens in verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, so now he's going to take a turn at preaching. There are six days in which work ought to be done. The word ought is important. Jesus is going to use the word ought in reference to the woman's healing. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days. Set up an appointment on one of those days and be healed, but not today, not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord, again, using that word Lord very specifically because he is the Lord and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the day that he created. This is the day that was created for him. And this is a day that he makes the rules for, not the Mishnah and not the ruler of the synagogue. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, and all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. Verses 18 to 21 this follows, this connects to this passage. Notice what he says in verse 18. He said, therefore, he's saying in response to everything that's already been done, this scene, this experience with this woman who had this affliction, this conversation that he had with the Pharisees, he said, therefore, so there's something more about the kingdom that we can learn. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So the kingdom of heaven is something that we would look at and say, that is insignificant. What, what's, what's a mustard seed, a very tiny seed? What is that? You know, it's nothing. But a man comes and plants it in the ground, and it grows to be a tree. could be six, eight, even up to 12 feet tall, so that the birds can come and rest on the branches. It's going to expand and it's going to encompass not only where that mustard seed was planted, but it's going to encompass the nations. So there is this spreading of the kingdom. And he says in verse 20, and he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in three measures of flour until it was all Leaven. So the, the kingdom of heaven is going to be spreading. The kingdom of heaven is going to be growing. The kingdom of heaven is going to be expanding. The kingdom of heaven is going to be a blessing to many, but it's going to be growing and operating in ways that are not going to be as obvious as we think they are. It's not going to be the rulers at the synagogue or the systems that we create. God is going to be working in ways, and we need to watch carefully so that we don't miss him. 
Three things we see from the text this morning. Number one, we see the beauty of the kingdom. We see the beauty of the kingdom in verses 10 to 13. First of all, he gives us the location. He gives us the setting. He gives us the day. And he's coming to these people right here on this day. And the same theme is there. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is right in front of you. He's, I think, uh, hearkening back to Luke chapter 12 and verse 54, where he said, you know the weather, but you cannot tell that the kingdom is standing right in front of you. Here is a man walking in, healing a woman that everybody knows has been bound up for 18 years, and you can't tell that, that the kingdom has come right in front of your face. You can see the physical world. You can see what's in front of you, but you're not taking the time to consider what's inside of you. So he gives us this location. Secondly, he gives us this situation. You can look at it in verse number 11 and, and just notice how he breaks it down. He says, and behold, the word behold means discern. So he's, he's asking, um, the, Luke is, is, is asking us to discern what's going on here in the text. And here's what I want you to understand. There is a story within the story. Don't, don't miss the story that is within the story. Jesus is trying to get us to see that. There is what the natural eye can see and respond to, the, the obvious stuff. But we need to behold. We need to slow down for a second. There's more to the story. God is up to more than the naked eye can see. God is up to more than what simple observation and reason will lead us to. Something deeper is going on here than just another Sabbath and another lesson. And let's go eat some fried chicken when it's over. Behold. He digs in now to what he wants us to behold. First of all, there is a woman. There is a woman who has been created in the image of God. There is a woman who has dignity and beauty and purpose. There is a woman who was created to use her energy, to use her voice, to use her ears to worship and praise and give glory to God. Here's, here's a woman who was created to be in relationship with God and to be in relationship with other people. And he tells us in verse 16 that she is a daughter of Abraham. And here's the amazing thing about this woman. She had a lot of problems. She had a lot of excuses that she could have used. But probably for the past 18 years, this woman who was bent over kept coming to the gathering at the synagogue every Sunday. This faithful woman, this daughter of of Abraham, although she had these phys physical debilitating issues. He tells us in the text that here is this woman with a disabling spirit. We know from the text that it's something that in some way, we don't believe it's demon possession, but in some way, what has happened to her physically is connected to the spiritual realm. What has happened to her physically is, is attributed to the power and the work of Satan. I want you to think about what this woman's experiencing for just a minute. I think we've got to consider it before we consider the work that Christ has done. Her, her disability was limiting. It was restricting. It was unnatural. It prevented her from doing what most people don't even have to think about doing. It was a spirit in the spiritual realm. And for 18 years, she had been bent completely forward. And she was not able, there was, she was not physically capable of raising herself up. Think about it. 
She could probably talk, but she couldn't have a normal conversation. She couldn't lift a child. Could you imagine what it would be like to try to drink a glass of water or use the bathroom or blow your nose or lay down to sleep or try to sit in a chair or take a breath? This debilitating condition dominated every area of her life. Not only that, she was a spectacle. You know how we look at people and they look different and we think things and we even make fun of them. Imagine how she walked. How did she keep her balance? What did she do? Imagine her gait, her appearance, her clothing. She was somewhat of a spectacle, but yet she shows up every week at the synagogue. She was unacceptable to touch. Everybody was hoping that social distancing would be in. Anybody with a problem like hers, particularly if it was attributed to the work of Satan, was untouchable. You didn't want to cross paths with them. You didn't want to be in front of her. If she was walking down this row, you'd go down this row. You'd try to make sure that you avoided her. There were no Shriners hospitals. There were no physical therapists. There was no handicap parking. This was her world. Eight years. Not 18 seconds, not 18 minutes. 18 years with everything in her life, from her head to her toe, with everything that she did was impacted by this physical disability that was somehow connected to the activity of Satan. When we come to verse 12, we see Jesus interacting with her. The text is absolutely beautiful. Would you just stop for a minute and consider this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. It is absolutely gripping. If you see the woman in the condition that she's in, Jesus goes in the synagogue doing his thing, and the Son of God interrupted the order of worship. <laughs> the Son of God broke into the liturgy. Hallelujah. You know? You can't do that. That's not in the order of worship. You can't do that. That's not our protocol. That's not our liturgy here in the synagogue. But Jesus saw her. He saw everything about her, just like he sees everything about you and me. He saw her limitations. He saw her loneliness. He saw her heart. He saw her determination when she got up on the Sabbath. And she's like, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I get to do. Nothing was going to stop her. He saw her. He noticed her. He was interested in her. He didn't reject her. He wasn't repulsed by her. He didn't treat her like she was invisible. Jesus saw her. Jesus, the text tells us, called her over. Come over here. Leave where you are and come to where I am. That is the call of Christ to all of us. Leave where you are. Repent. You don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay in your sin. You don't have to stay in your brokenness. You don't have to stay in the mess that you and I have made of our lives. We don't have to stay in the dungeon of our history. We don't have to stay there. 
You don't have to stay back there, woman in the back seat where everybody wants you to hide and nobody wants to see you. No, you don't have to stay in your loneliness. You don't have to stay in your invisibleness. He saw her. Christ calls us out of where we are, and he takes everything that was us, and he nailed it to his cross, and then he died in our place and shed his blood and paid sin's penalty completely so that we could leave where we were to come and be where he is. He wants you. He wants me. He wants you more than Satan wants you. He's paid a higher price for you than Satan is willing to pay for you. He's going to tell you the truth. He's not going to lie. He's not going to deceive you. He's not going to try to trip you up. He's not going to try to keep you in bondage. He's going to set you free. He called her over. He stopped teaching. He interrupted the service. I'm not sure how this woman was able to look at him when he said, come over here. I would imagine she was like, Nobody's spoken to me in 18 years. Nobody's wanted me to come stand with them in 18 years. I've been rejected and an outcast for 18 years. I've been the woman who had this satanic influence and malady in her life. But Jesus not only saw her, but he called her over. And the text says he spoke with her, spoke to her, not at her. He says, woman, we hear his words of affection. We hear, him, we hear him placing dignity upon this woman as one who was created in the image of God. We see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, recognizing this broken woman. We see him speaking to her, and now he's going to offer her words of hope and healing and freedom and mercy on this, the Sabbath day. The text also tells us he set her free. He said, you are loosed. Here on the Sabbath, you are loosed. Here on the Sabbath, a day of freedom. You see, people that understood um, Israel and they understood Judaism historically understood that there was a period of time when their people were in slavery and bondage and they could not recognize the Sabbath. But once they are set free, now they are free to exercise worship on the Sabbath and honor God on the Sabbath and to focus on Him on the Sabbath. And so it's not a day of bondage. It's not a day of restriction. It's not a day of dread. It's not a day where the clouds hang over. It is a day of freedom. It's a day where people can be released, where people can be undone, where sin has bound us. We can be untied. He set her free. She was set free from her disability. She was set free from her disabling spirit. She was set free from Satan's bondage. And this is what Jesus said he would do. You can go back to Luke chapter 4 and verse number 18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to pro proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, as Jesus is preaching from the Isaiah scroll. Verse 13, as we read on, says that, And he laid his hands on her. This woman had been untouched. She had been without the blessing and benefit of a hug for 18 years. You say, where, where are you getting that? You, you didn't touch somebody who was messed up, twisted up like a pretzel like she was. You didn't touch somebody who had the influence, who had the power of Satan, exercised in some way, shape, or form over her life. But Jesus touched her. Jesus touched her. 
Jesus touched her. I don't know how he touched her. I don't think he touched her Benny Hinn style. I don't think he slapped her up on the forehead to try to knock her brains out. I don't know exactly how he touched her, but I would imagine that he em embraced her. I would imagine that he drew her close. You've got to take into account that this woman was cursed. This woman, to most, was a freak. She was an outcast. She had poor hygiene. She had dirty clothes. She probably had no access to a breath mint. But Jesus, his love, his compassion, his care, his life-giving words, his life-giving embrace... And the text says that immediately she was made straight. She was set straight again. It's literally a word that talks about what's, what's happening to her um, bones. Jesus Christ spoke a word, touched this woman, and she was restored to health. You can't read that. And look at a kid wheeling around in the atrium every Sunday morning. Not want that for him, can you? Can you? Can, can we look at, at broken people? Can we look at folks who, for whatever reason, are struggling with physical disabilities? And you can't look at that and say, this is just absolutely beautiful. This is what Jesus does. This is how Jesus works. This is what it's like in the kingdom. There is this, there is this beautiful healing interaction relationally in the kingdom of God. What would you do if that happened here today? What would you do if that happened to your child? What would you do if that happened to your grandchild? What would you do? You'd go crazy. This is what the kingdom is like, folks. This is what the presence and power of Jesus Christ is like among his people. It's something like the world has never seen. It's something like the world has never experienced. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you want that? And the text tells us she glorified God. The word glory is, uh, the root word is, is where we get doxology from. Doxa, I can't give you the guttural sound from that x sound it's not an x but anyway she she glorified she sang the doxology what is what does doxa mean it means to give weight to it means to see the value of and so now when she sees jesus when she sees the kingdom when here he is seeing her, recognizing her, calling her over to him, interacting with her, being interested in her, noticing her, not ignoring her, not treating her like she's invisible. For the first time in 18 years, someone has touched her. And now Jesus says, woman, you can stand up. And she's no longer standing up. This is the kingdom. And she sees the activity of Christ in his kingdom. And all of a sudden she breaks out in worship. We, we don't worship because we don't know Jesus. We don't worship because we don't see Jesus active in his kingdom. 
she sees how valuable Jesus is. She received his healing for her brokenness. She received his blessing for her curse. She received his life for her death. And so she worshiped. This is the kingdom. And I don't have anything profound or deep to say. I don't have anything that's deeply theological or highly academic. Sometimes all we should be able to do if we're in the kingdom is just say, wow. Sometimes we should, all we should be able to do if we're in the kingdom is just say, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. That is so indescribably beautiful. And I can apply this to us this morning. Would you please listen for a second as we've stopped to take a minute to look at what Jesus did? Those of us who say we're in the kingdom, listen, listen carefully. We should be no less relational. We should be no less noticing. We should be no less conversant. We should be no less intimate. We should be no less powerful. We should be no less delivered. We should be no less worshipful, right? If we are all of these things through the power of the Spirit who lives within us as we interact with one another in the kingdom, then people ought to say, that is beautiful. Wow. Wow. One writer said, we cannot move into our world with other-centered energy and noble purpose as long as we remain alone. This woman was alone, but she's not alone anymore. As long as we remain alone, and he goes on to say, unknown, unexplored, undiscovered, untouched. And that is exactly what happened here. This woman was known, she was explored, she was discovered, she was touched, she was released, and that is the kingdom. That is the kingdom of God, and it is beautiful. That is the kingdom that we were saved into. That is the kingdom that we were called to live out, and it's not theoretical or hypothetical or conceptual or ideological or information. It's not this world of deep theology and rule following. It is a relational world where lives intersect and people are loosed and God is worshiped and glorified and it is beautiful. And by the way, if you go from Luke to James chapter 5, listen to this. I'm not sure why we don't believe this anymore. Some would say James shouldn't be in the Bible. I believe he should. I'm glad it is. He said, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Just take some time to read that. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He said, what do you think that is? I don't have a clue what it is. I don't know if that's a medicinal massage. I don't know if that's olive oil or canola oil or coconut oil or peanut oil. I don't know. I know I'm not buying some oil from somebody. All I know is this in the Bible. All I know is this in the Bible. You can study it out. You can figure out a way to do it that'll make you the, the, the weirdest person on the planet, or you can figure out a way to ignore it. And a lot of people do. A lot of people explain it away. We explain away the work of Christ in the kingdom. 
there, there it is in the Bible. What do we do? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, not just to God, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And we see what happened when Elijah prayed. God was at work. We see this connection. You can read on uh, verse 19. A brother wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. There is, this, there is this relational interaction that is undeniable throughout Scripture. And it is those things that make us a part of a kingdom that at the end of the day all we can say is that is absolutely beautiful. Our calling card is not that we're smarter than everybody. Our calling card is not that we're holier than everybody. Our calling card is, is everybody's got a calling card. Let me tell you what makes our church different. The thing that we should be able to use to convince people of the reality of who Jesus Christ is is the beauty of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And if he's living in you, then people ought to see the beauty of Jesus Christ flowing out of us and say, man, that is either a kingdom that I hate and I'm going to reject or it is a kingdom that I know I need to be a part of. But wherever there's beauty in the kingdom, there are, there are bullies in the kingdom. And here's this guy who is a ruler of the synagogue. And, and I don't want to be too hard on this guy because I think probably in his world, in his kingdom, he means well. I think he's trying to protect the Sabbath. I think he's trying to protect his understanding of the Sabbath. But he doesn't cut Jesus any slack, and Jesus doesn't cut him any slack. So I don't want to be um, unfaithful to the text. As soon as this happened, this guy goes into action. This beautiful kingdom, even in the face of opposition, now is going to be a kingdom that is un. Stoppable. What do we see about this ruler? Let me say, t t this guy would not be a ruler of the synagogue unless he were qualified. He he's qualified in his character. He's qualified in his knowledge. He's qualified in his theology. He's qualified in his fluency in Scripture. He's qualified in his knowledge of the law. He's qualified in his ability to be a Sabbatarian apologist. He understands the Sabbath, and he can tell you everything about the Sabbath. He had perfected the Sabbath. He knew all the rules of the Sabbath. He followed all the rules of the Sabbath. And he was above and critical of those who didn't get the Sabbath right. Why don't you get the rules right so here we go this woman who was in the covenant who was a daughter of abraham who was oppressed by satan who was twisted up like a pretzel who was faithful to go to the synagogue 18 years he knows her he knows her condition he's very familiar familiar with every every bit of it. he knows her agony he knows her misery he knows her dysfunction but the text tells us he is indignant he is indignant. He sees this beautiful display of love and freedom and deliverance, and he is indignant. He is indignant because Jesus Christ has healed on the Sabbath. What does it mean that he's healed on the Sabbath? Jesus has worked on the Sabbath. Now, we can read about the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 8. 
and it doesn't say anything about healing as a work on the Sabbath, but they had this little commentary on the law called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah wanted to make sure that nobody worked on the Sabbath. So what they did is they created all of these different things that you could do and you couldn't do on the Sabbath to make sure that you did not work on the Sabbath as though God is sitting in heaven saying, what are you doing? Right? I'm wondering where that God is in the Bible but it was a God that they had created in their own image. A lot of times when we come up with our extra biblical commentaries and rules and dogma, it's something that we usually create in our own image. It's usually something that makes us feel good about ourselves or better than other people that we can enforce, that we can be angry about, that we can be bitter about, that we can be indignant about. And in his diligence to protect the Sabbath, he completely missed the meaning of the Sabbath and he completely missed the Lord of the Sabbath. He could tell you what the weather was going to be like on Wednesday, but he couldn't tell you when the kingdom of God walked through the door and stood right in front of his face and radically changed a broken woman's life. The Sabbath was a day for mercy, a day for healing, a day for freedom, a day for loosing. But he said, schedule your healing on some other day. We've got to keep the Sabbath. Let this woman suffer. Let her suffer. He is insistent. He incites the crowd with a mini sermon of his own. And then Jesus responds in verses 15 and 16. So we see the ruler and we see the response. And it says, the Lord answered. The creator and owner of the Sabbath answered them. And he says, first of all, right off the bat, he said, you hypocrites, you two-faced, double-sided, inconsistent people, you who claim to be God's representatives, you who claim to be the ruler of the synagogue, you holy people. The Mishnah prohibits mercy and movement in favor of a broken woman, and we just leave her in her misery. Is that what the law is about? But the Mishnah says, and Jesus says this, you can have compassion on, and show mercy on your floppy-eared donkey. You're saying tell this woman to come back six other days, but, but, but she can't be healed today, but on this day you'll go make sure your donkey and your ox get watered? You hypocrites they're angry about a broken man-made rule standing there with the sin of donkey excrement on their sandals because they took their donkey to get water on the sabbath but yet the holy man would leave this woman in her pain and misery for a second for a minute for an hour for a day for 18 years all to enforce a man-made rule based on a misunderstanding of the Sabbath and a misunderstanding of God himself. Jesus said, just like the man said, you ought not to do this on the Sabbath. Jesus said, this woman ought to be loosed on the Sabbath. He said, it can't happen on this day. Jesus said, it had to happen on this day. 
This day is for this very thing. This day is for you to be loosed and set free from the chains and from the ropes and from the sin and from the physical disabilities that bind us. This woman ought to be loosed. Yet you are using this day, you are using religion, you are using the word of God to keep people in bondage. And the text tells us there was rejoicing. Jesus responds and the people rejoice. His adversaries are put to shame. The religious leaders are put to shame and all of the people rejoiced. They rejoiced because the religious elites made a mockery of a beautiful, worshipful, purposeful, life-giving day. And now all of their work to destroy the Sabbath and its beauty was turned completely around. And now it is a day not to lay burdens on people, but to relieve burdens. It's not a day of dread, but it is a day of joy. It is not a day of depression, but it is a day of happiness. They too were set free from their indignant leaders. They were set free from bad theology. They were set free from rigid legalism and a complete misrepresentation of God and his kingdom. Come here. This is the kingdom. Dear woman, you sit back there and stay away from everybody and you stay in your bent over condition and nobody's going to touch you or help you, but we're going to come here and we're going to worship God. Jesus said, I don't think so. These people rejoiced because they were instilled with hope. These people rejoiced because rather than looking at the kingdom through the lens of a bully, they looked at the kingdom through the lens of the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, and it was beautiful. Finally, we see in verses 18 to 21 the breadth of the kingdom. This beautiful kingdom, even in the face of opposition and bullies, is going to always and forever be expanding. According to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom. But I think we think the kingdom is big organizations, right? I think we think the kingdom is, is popular preachers, maybe guys that are on TV, nothing wrong with that. That's what we think the kingdom is. We think the kingdom is the place that seats 7,000 people. Or maybe, maybe the kingdom is when we gather up in Atlanta and there's 30,000, 40,000. Maybe we say that is the kingdom. This amazing organization that's doing all of these things that we can talk about and list out. Maybe we think that's the kingdom. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's small, insignificant. It is obscure. But it grows. He tells us in referencing this illustration of the mustard seed that the kingdom is, is, is expanding, but it's not through institution or religious systems. It's not through great events or programs or churches or denominations or personalities or authors or conferences or movements. But it is, it is progressing in an imperceptible fashion. It is obscure. It's unnoticed like maybe in an unknown synagogue on the Sabbath day that probably at that time bored people out of their skull. But all of a sudden, the kingdom walks in and says, I see you. Um, hey, come here. Come here. The kingdom moves in imperceptibly, and everybody's like, that can't be. It can't be of God. You just don't interrupt a worship service, do you? 
and she is healed. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is not what's happening in some massive gold-plated edifice in Jerusalem. The kingdom is where the people of God are. And probably not succeeding because, you see, Jesus is going from here to Jerusalem and he's going to Jerusalem to not be crowned. He's going to Jerusalem not to be bowed down and worshipped. He's not going to Jerusalem for everybody to say, it's amazing, look at the kingdom. He's going to Jerusalem to die. That's what happens when you're in a kingdom. So he's, he's like, this kingdom is unlike any other kingdom you've ever thought about. This kingdom is like a, 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 a mustard seed. But he says, though, though Psalm 2, men join hand in hand. They lock arms and say, we're against you, God. And he's like, no, you're not stopping the kingdom. No matter what's going on in Ukraine, no matter what Vladimir Putin does, no matter what Joe Biden does or Donald Trump or anybody else, World War III, nuclear war, economy may collapse we might not be able to get cobalt for batteries or, or gas for our diesels. We may not have food. <laughs> kingdom's still moving through. God's kingdom is still at work in the smallest imperceptible ways, and it is going to accomplish its purpose, and it's going to be spread to the nations. But it's not going to be through all of these massive human success efforts. It's going to be probably through a lot of failure and a lot of brokenness and a lot of weird things that happen in obscure ways. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. Secondly, he gives this illustration of the leaven and the flour. He's talking about the kingdom's pervasive influence from the inside out. So the kingdom grows and it's going to expand. It's going to be obscure. But, but he gives us this illustration of, of these, these, if you look at the text, this is, this is amazing. He said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Verse 20, it is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. That's a lot of flour. That's a bushel of flour. That's, that's 128 cups of flour. That's 16 five-pound bags of flour. And if you're going to take that flour, 16 five-pound bags of flour, a bushel of flour, and you're going to get it to mix up and coagulate so that you can make some biscuits out of it, you've got to put 42 cups of water in it. Consequently, when you mix together all of that flour and all of that water, you've got about 100 pounds of dough. And he says, so you've got this massive uh, slab of, of dough, this massive vat of dough. And he says, now you're going to take a, a, a slab of leaven. I don't know how much leaven he's talking about. He's not talking about much. It doesn't take much. It's just a little left over from, from the last batch. And you're going to quietly, you're going to quickly, you're going to completely put it into this 100 pounds of dough and it's going to work its way through it and produce a, a remarkable, undeniable, beautiful effect. That's what happens in the kingdom. And he connects it by saying, therefore, what is he saying to us? He wants us to see the breadth of the kingdom. But here's what he's saying. When you see the kingdom in your midst, when you see the true kingdom, it never seems to amount to much. From the world standards, when you see the true kingdom, it never seems to amount to much. 
Some days I, I think, man, I, I wish I could win the lottery, especially when he gets up to like $500 million. Does anybody else think like that? You think, what could I do with $500 million for the kingdom? I mean, now I haven't bought, haven't, <laughs> haven't bought any tickets lately, so not much chance of that. But then I'm like, Lord, would you let somebody that I know win the lottery that loves Jesus? <laughs> what could we do with that money? What could we do with all that money, right? How powerful would we be if we had the resources that the world had to do our work? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not my kingdom. That's not my kingdom. My kingdom's like a mustard seed. My kingdom's like leaven. And it, and it works imperceptibly. When you see the kingdom in your midst, the true kingdom, it never amounts to much. Like a mustard seed or leaven, it's insignificant. And Jesus is saying, don't miss the kingdom. It's not in the arenas. It's not in the news feed. It's out there somewhere where a despised, twisted-up woman gets released and set free. And if you believe the gospel, you can be set free this morning too. That's the kingdom. And that don't cost a dime. That's the kingdom. Let me ask you some questions and I'll, I'll close. H have you experienced the beauty of the kingdom? It's not a place of indignant bullies who know the rules, who know the law, who read the best commentaries. By the way, there's nothing wrong with knowing the rules, knowing the law, knowing the scriptures. There is something wrong with all of that if you know all of that and you don't know Jesus. If the things that you know about the kingdom and the things that you know about Scripture and the things that you say you know about Jesus make you indignant, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Because there's a beauty where Christ is working, particularly in our hearts. It's, it's this indignance that gunks up the kingdom with, with un, worried about undotted I's and uncrossed T's, always making their presence felt through accusation and doubt finding and, and doubt casting and fault finding and, and axe grinding, never seeing the broken who need to be freed, never seeing the beauty and the grace and the mercy and the life and the healing of the kingdom. Have you experienced the kingdom? And by the way, folks, when we get together, people ought to experience the beauty of the kingdom. When you meet together for life group, people ought to experience the beauty of the kingdom. We want you to give out these, these uh, tracks. We want you to p give people this card, an invitation to our uh, Good Friday service, which we're having a Good Friday service here, and they're having a Good Friday service in McDonough. Don't make me look bad. I just figured you'd show up. Okay? People, people come in here, they ought to see the beauty of the kingdom. They ought to see it in how we relate. They ought to see it in how we look at them, how we notice them, how we speak to them, how we call them over, how we are concerned about what's going on in their life, how we interact with them, how we hear their story. That's why we want people to join us for life groups so that we can connect relationally. That's why, that's why we want men to meet with men and women to meet with women and DNA so that we can connect relationally because life happens in those settings when we are about the kingdom. It's beautiful. 
It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. The beauty of the kingdom is a place where we will be seen, known, explored, discovered, and touched. That's relational. Everybody needs that. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you feel so alone. You feel like nobody cares. You feel like nobody's interested. You feel like nobody knows what's going on in your mind. Nobody, what's going, nobody knows what's going on in your heart. You got, you got your fist balled up. But I'm telling you, there is a kingdom where you can relate to Jesus Christ and to his people. And it is a beautiful kingdom, and I want us to be that kingdom, seen, known, explored, delivered, discovered, and touched. Thirdly, how do you respond to broken people? Is the kingdom reaching out through you to set people free or increase their sense of failure, shame, and guilt? I'll tell you what, if you just follow this rule, it, it, life would be better. If you just do this, life would be better. If you'd stop doing that, life would be better. You did this and got yourself into that mess. Stop doing that and get yourself out of that mess. How do you respond to broken people? Do you show them the beauty of the kingdom? Or do you just compound their misery, their guilt, their shame, their failure? Are you hopeless? Fourthly, are you just waiting for the next rule to be broken so you can put your knowledge of the rules on display? Are you just waiting for the next rule to be broken so you can show everybody just how well you know the rules? Fifthly, are you willing to experience the kingdom in obscure, imperceptible, and unremarkable ways? Sixthly, are you compelling others to enter the kingdom by manifesting its beauty, by celebrating its beauty? Come and see. Come and see. Are you compelled to invite anybody that you know, no matter what shape they're in, to come join us at a gathering, to come join us for life group, to come join you in DNA, to come join you for coffee? And are you confident that when you sit down with them, there's something in you that you didn't create? There's something in you, and his name is Jesus. There's something in you, and it's the Holy Spirit. There's something in you, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. And while you may not be confident in yourself, are you confident that the beauty of Jesus Christ can come flowing out of you into their brokenness? That's the beauty of the kingdom. And it may be at Dunkin' Donuts. It may be at Starbucks. It may be at the Mexican restaurant. It may be in your life group or DNA. It may be when you Find that person and latch your eyes and your heart on them. And you say, hey, come here. Leave where you are and come here because there's something beautiful. Come over here Friday night. Why? Because we want to pack the room out? Absolutely. I'd love to pack the room out. I'd love to call them down there at McDonald's and say, hey, how many did y'all have? <laughs> well, let me tell you how many we had, right? Y'all got to take me out to supper this week, Okay. We don't do that, by the way. Is that why we want to do that? Absolutely not. We want people to come because they're so tired. This world is so ugly. Sin 
is so destructive. And we want people to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We live in a world that really doesn't know what standing up straight is. But if they could see it, they'd want it. And again, it's going to make some people angry. Some people are going to reject. Some people are going to say, I don't want anything to do with that. But we live in a world that is longing to stand up straight, but it has been isolated and captured by Satan in the fall and held captive to hopelessness. And we have the answer and we hold the key. And his name is Jesus. And he is beautiful. And he is life-giving. And he is bondage-releasing. And he is back-straightening. And his kingdom is a back-straightening kingdom that lets people not look down all the time, but look up and worship him in the beauty of his holiness. It's a beautiful kingdom. If you're not in the kingdom, I invite you today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord. Trust him and his finished work to bring you into a right standing with holy God. Something spiritual will enter into you that will connect you to every other believers and quite frankly, will make you incomplete without connection to other believers. But when you are in, in community with other believers, it will make you complete. And I would just beg you this morning, come. It's a beautiful kingdom. It's a beautiful kingdom.